Welcome to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, until recently, he was the president of a large nation. Now, he's just a Florida man. And no, we're not talking about Donald Trump. Yeah, that's right, Matthew. Former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has been staying at home in Orlando since losing his re-election bid in December. Videos have circulated on social media of Bolsonaro hanging out at his neighborhood Publix. He was recently hospitalized in Central Florida as well for abdominal pain. Meanwhile, dozens of House Democrats, including some of the top members of the Foreign Affairs Committee, sent a letter late last Wednesday to President Joe Biden urging his administration to revoke any diplomatic visa that Bolsonaro may be using to stay in the United States. Now, they made the request after thousands of Bolsonaro supporters stormed government buildings in the Brazilian capital. They were objecting to the former president's defeat. They smashed windows and set off fireworks from the roof of the Brazilian Congress. Bolsonaro disputed the election results, but he also said protesters crossed a line with their violent conduct. We're talking about Bolsonaro and his presence in Florida. What do you think about this, Florida? Give us a call, 305-995-1800 statewide, or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Well, joining us for more insight and analysis is Tim Padgett, WLRN America's editor. Uh, for more on Bolsonaro in Florida, Tim, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. So there have been some calls from some in the United States to send Bolsonaro back to Brazil, but he told CNN he'll head home earlier than he planned, which was going to be late January. He didn't say exactly when that sort of uh, date would be moved up to, but what can you tell us about calls for his ouster from the U.S. and, and what comes next? Well, it's it's mainly a Democratic Party call uh, for him to uh, leave Florida, to leave the United States. I think this, um, you know, Bolsonaro has never been popular with the Democratic Party here, particularly with President Biden and particularly for things like, you know, his uh, so-called destruction of the Amazon rainforest, things of that nature. And so given all of that, when this happened last Sunday in Brasilia, this ransacking, this rioting uh, in the Capitol at these government buildings, I think that was sort of the last straw for a lot of Democrats who already look at Florida as a place that's just a constant repository for, you know, especially right wing dictators from Latin America, uh, a place for them to flee to. And they didn't want that to become the case here uh, for, for Bolsonaro. And so you've got people like Darren Soto, the Congress, Democratic congressman in Orlando, where, as you point out, um, Bolsonaro is now staying. Um, they have been calling uh, for uh, President Biden to, to turn the screws on Bolsonaro and, and find a way to get him out of here as quickly as possible. Yeah. Now, Tim, you've been to Brasilia, right? The Brazilian capital. Oh, yes. Often. So, I just wanted to get your reaction. I mean, give us a sense of the layout of the place, of course, for anyone who has any interest in architecture. It's like an architectural wonder, right? It's kind of these right. amazing uh, modernist buildings set in this beautiful landscaping. What was it like? You know, Give us a sense of the layout of the place and what was it like for you sort of seeing what was unfolding in the footage of protesters rampaging through these buildings. Right. Brasilia, as a national capital, it's it's not as, you know, say, impressive as a place like Washington, D.C. or Paris. It's, it's sort of sitting out there in the, in the middle of, of what many people call nowhere in Brazil. But that was the whole point, to move the capital away from the coast, from Rio de Janeiro, and, and have it more accessible to, to more people in Brazil. And as you point out, the jewel of that effort is this modernist architecture that was completed in the 1950s and 60s by a very famous Brazilian architect named Oscar Niemeyer, particularly two of the buildings that these rioters ransacked on Sunday, the Planalto Presidential Palace and the National Congress, which, as you point out, are two of the most impressive modern pieces of modernist architecture uh, in the world, so much so that UNESCO uh, declared Brasilia and those buildings a, a world heritage site uh, not long ago. So and, and I whenever I would go to Brasilia to do reporting there, it was it was always really a marvel to, to sit and look, particularly at the National Congress building, one of the most interesting pieces of architecture in the world, really. And, and to see th those buildings um, being ransacked that way, yeah, it was it was um, it was depressing to say the least. Right. It's also kind of strange too because the supporters of Bolsonaro have adopted the 
the uh, national soccer team's you know football jersey has their kind of insignia, right? So it's a very well, right. I mean, to, to see them ransack those buildings—that's a good point. To see them ransack those buildings was almost like watching a Brazilians pull down a statue of Pele, one mm-hmm. of the most you know uh, precious symbols of what Brazil stands for. And uh, so, yeah, it, it made it all the more uh, devastating. Yeah. Now, since he's been staying in Florida, fans of the former president have been flocking to his Kissimmee area neighborhood. He's he's staying in a, a place which has got a lot of uh, Airbnbs. It's kind of catering towards the some of the expat community from Brazil and other countries for sure, but also a lot of people visiting the theme parks. Uh, we've seen footage of him, you know, people going to get selfies and get autographs from uh, Bolsonaro, what do we know about why he decided to come to Florida? Why is it that he's found such a warm welcome here in the Sunshine State? Because they love him here. Uh, Brazilian expats overwhelmingly, almost unanimously, love Jair Bolsonaro. And if you look at the the the, the tally of of the last two presidential elections, 2018 and and just in October, uh, 80 more than I think in 2018 it was more than 90 percent of Brazilian voters in South Florida cast their votes for Bolsonaro. More than 80 percent uh, did this time. And so Bolsonaro knows that he's always going to get a very warm welcome here. In fact, just just uh, back in last summer, they held this huge motorcycle rally for him. And and he and he when he was visiting uh, the state, he came and took part in that motorcycle rally around Orlando. Um, so he he really uh, feels the love here, and he also feels the love of Donald Trump. I mean, he has visited Mar-a-Lago uh, during his presidency. Uh, he and Trump are very much right-wing kindred spirits, and so this is uh, it. Didn't surprise us at all that uh, you know, in in his petulance, you know, refusing to to concede his his uh, re-election uh, loss uh, back in October, and not wanting to take play, take part in Lula's inauguration on January 1st and hand him the sash, it, it surprised none of us that he chose to come here to escape. Quite a lot of parallels, right? I mean, just in the fact that he boycotted the uh, the inauguration uh, yes. of Lula, his successor, with what happened a couple of years ago exactly. in the United States. And of course, the storming of the Brazilian government buildings came almost exactly two years after the assault on the US Capitol. Tim, what parallels do you see between those two incidents and what are the differences? I see, I see quite a few. I mean, on, on the one hand, you've, you, uh, Bolsonaro uh, has always, since he became president in 2019, he has always tried to emulate Donald Trump in, in many, many ways. Uh, perhaps the most glaring being the pandemic denialism that the two shared as presidents, which is one of the reasons, I think a big reason, why the United States and Brazil have the number one and number two highest uh, COVID death tolls in the world uh, after this pandemic. And so it's it's no surprise at all then that Bolsonaro followers, Bolsonaristas as we call them, would want to ape Trumpistas or MAGA. And so we all knew that something like this was going to happen. Um, you know, we, we, we thought it might happen at, at Lula's inauguration on, on New Year's Day. Um, but again, it, it didn't surprise us that it eventually did happen, uh, albeit on January 8th, albeit after uh, Lula had, had taken office as president, um, uh, because the, the aim was really still the same in, in the sense that the, the Bolsonaristas uh, believe that Bolsonaro lost the October election by fraud, mm-hmm. uh, as he insists. And so they, what they want is the Brazilian military to step in and restore Bolsonaro to power. And that's what Sunday, January 8th was all about. They thought that if they staged this violence there, that it, w- it would somehow uh, be an impetus for the Brazilian military to step in and do their bidding. Do you see uh, the movement that Bolsonaro inspired dissipating or does it what what happens from here in your view oh no it's not dissipating bolsonaro himself may be dissipating at this point as 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 a figure as a leader of that movement but the movement that he stands for the sort of you know really hard turn to the right in brazil uh these these past elections in october show that it it is thriving um in in the congressional elections for example in the senate uh, the, his party, the uh, Partido Liberal or Liberal Party, uh, took 14 seats. That's that's almost a fifth of the seats, in, 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 and the same in the Chamber of Deputies, the lower house. That's the first time in a generation 
that one party has gotten that kind of dominance in, in the Congress. And and you'll say, wait, wait, it's only a fifth of the seats. You got to understand in Brazil, we've got hundreds of political parties almost, you know, vying for power. And so for one party to take that that many seats um, is, is pretty impressive, as well as the number of governor races that pro Bolsonaro uh, candidates won. So no, no, his his movement is very strong in Brazil, even if he is a figure right now seems to be uh, on the outs. From president to shopping at Publix, we are talking live statewide here on the Florida Roundup about ousted Brazilian President Bolsonaro hanging out these days in central Florida. Have you seen the video of him that's been posted on social media? Greeting supporters, taking selfies, maybe picking up a pub sub here and there. It's really been extraordinary. Uh, We're speaking now with Tim Padgett. He's an expert on the region with WLRN, and we want your calls, 305-995-1800. What do you think about this? And calls in Washington uh, for the Biden administration to uh, send Bolsonaro on his way out of the United States. 305-995-1800, Lee in Winter Park. Hi, Lee, you're on the air. Happy Friday. Go ahead, Lee. Well, we might have lost that call, Tim, but what he wanted to say was he believes anti-democratic leaders should not be allowed to come to the U.S. Now, as you mentioned, Florida is getting a reputation, and maybe it's had that reputation for some time, for being a place uh, for exiles and uh, guys like Bolsonaro. But what about that sentiment? Uh, Do we have Lee back? Lee, are you there? Yes, can you hear me? Oh, there you go. Go ahead, Lee. Yes, you're exactly right. Those of us in Central Florida who believe in the rule of law, who believe in the Constitution of the United States, we are um, shocked and astonished that this uh, fascist dictator is taking, harboring among us. Basically, he's fomenting more right-wing radicalism in Central Florida. And I I presume that many of of the right-wing love that. And to me, it brings out more and more aggression of the right wing here in Florida. You don't know what they're going to do next. And to have Bolsonaro uh, in our midst, uh, a former Trump accolade who loves who they love each other. We don't want another January 6th. I hope and pray the Biden administration, the Department of Justice will use some way to control Bolsonaro and his uh, being here in Central Florida. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Tim Padgett, of course, uh Let's not uh, fail to mention the obvious, which is that former President Donald Trump is also a Florida resident uh, after uh, trying to lead an unsuccessful insurrection against our government. What about Lee's comments? Well, I don't think people likely, I I think they don't have to worry about Bolsonaro staying here too long. I think he now understands that he's not a very popular figure, although he's a popular figure, as we've been mentioning, with the Brazilian expat community here. I think he realizes now that he's not a particularly popular figure with the U.S. political establishment, particularly uh, the Democratic Party. And he has said himself that he's probably going to cut his visit short here. He was on what's called an A-1 visa, uh, given all often two heads of state like himself. And so technically it was it was, you know, very legal for him to come to Florida with that visa, although since he lost the presidency as of January 1st, he was no longer president of Brazil. And therefore, he had only 30 days left uh, before that A1 visa for himself expired. And, and he knew that. And so he was he was probably going to be out of here by the end of the month anyway. And it's looking now like it could be sooner. Mm. Lisa tweets the show. Florida has become a sanctuary state for malfeasance and bad actors, she says. 305-995-1800. Linda. Linda in Dunellen. Hi, Linda. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm a snowbird, and I really enjoy the sunshine in Florida in the winter. But as I was listening to your program, I'm thinking we can't even seem to take care of our own homegrown wannabe dictators. And so it seems pretty slim chance that we would let Bolsonaro um, give him an exit uh, strategy. Linda, thanks for your thoughts. As you mentioned, Tim, uh, Bolsonaro has made noise about wanting to uh, up sticks pretty soon from Florida. Isn't that yeah. isn't that right? 
Yeah, I, I again, I, I think we'll probably be seeing him leave by the end of the month. The question is, where does he go? He is under investigation back in Brazil for uh, certain crimes such as fomenting uh, disinformation, which may sound strange to Americans because, you know, just uh, being a being an exponent of disinformation is not particularly grounds for criminal charges. But the way the the Supreme Court has been viewing it in Brazil, he is liable for disinformation that's led to threats uh, on on the lives of Supreme Court members, etc. Um, he denies that, but he is under investigation and could be facing uh, charges if back in Brazil now that he's no longer president. And that's assumed to be one of the reasons that he came here was to get away from that mm. for a while. So we don't know exactly whether he'll go back to Brazil uh, when he leaves Florida or if he'll find another country uh, to sort of roost in. But, you know, as you mentioned, uh, disinformation facing criminal charges uh, for spreading disinformation. If that were well, one, against the law in America, there'd be a lot of yeah. people facing some charges. <laughs> right. Well, it's a little more complicated than that because one of, one of the nuances of this is, was he using his government funds to fund a uh -huh. lot of, uh, a lot of uh, what, 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 what are called in Brazil right now is digital militias? Um, uh, bloggers, for example, who were some of whom I should mention have all are also now fugitives in Florida, living li living in in Orlando, for example. One notorious blogger uh, who has an arrest order uh, on him uh, back in Brazil, and and uh, the, the Supreme Court in Brazil has has called for his extradition back mm. back to Brazil. So, uh, it's uh, it's it's a complicated uh, matter. Scott in West Palm Beach, go ahead, Scott. Yes, hi. Uh, good afternoon. Yeah, my comment is this, and it's not to make light of a very dark figure uh, this is, uh, as Donald Trump is, but I think there's some sort of rite of passage that these twisted characters have to come to Florida. It's kind of like, what are you doing? I'm going to Disney World after you win a game. And he's, I, I was in the journalism business here for 42 years, and the amount of strange twisted characters that have crossed our our beaches is kind of uh, uh, uncountable but I, it, it, it's sad he, I, he, he's a bad man um, but he will move on and, and then it'll get in place for the next person to come to the turnstile so all right um, thank you another thank you scott you know tim there's a reason why florida has long been called a sunny place for shady people all right. Well, I think the reason that may be is you have to look at the, the nature of the expat communities that have settled here in Florida. So many of them, the Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, uh, and the Colombians, uh, for example, who are becoming a much stronger political force here, and, and Brazilians. Now, so many of them have come here to escape left-wing regimes, mm -hmm. left-wing dictatorships often in, mm -hmm. in Latin America, which is why... Perhaps Florida becomes such a magnet as we see it for right wing um, right wing autocrats, for example, to come because they feel more welcome here because the nature of the expat communities here is more welcoming to right wing figures than it would be uh, to uh, to left wing figures. If 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 uh, socialist dictator Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela tried to settle in Florida, he wouldn't be very welcome. That's because right. Just, uh, yeah, and, the, and, the nature and, of the communities and, here is such. And we're so privileged to have your expert analysis. I want to thank you so much for breaking this down for our statewide audience. Tim Paget, WLRN America's editor. Thank you. No, thank you. Well, still to come, why New College of Florida could be taking a hard right turn as some students and faculty say they'll fight the change. That's when the Florida Roundup continues from Florida Public Radio.
Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, Sarasota's new college has a reputation as one of, as one of Florida's most progressive universities. New College of Florida touts its commitment to diversity and inclusion, highlighting on its website a vibrant campus community that celebrates diversity, encourages individual expression, and values openness, kindness, and mutual respect. But the values of New College could all soon change for this small liberal arts institution. Governor Ron DeSantis has appointed six new members to the 13-member board of trustees at New College. One of them, conservative activist Christopher Rufo, has become somewhat of a go-to for DeSantis in his culture war campaign. Rufo flew to Miami last year to appear with the governor at the signing of his Stop Woke Act. Rufo told the New York Times that his goal at New College is to, quote, create a new core curriculum from scratch. That's right. And as those appointments are being made, students at New College are pushing back at what they call a hostile takeover of their school. They've launched a Twitter account, NCF Students for Educational Freedom. There's a petition at change.org calling on state lawmakers not to confirm the new board members. They also voiced their concerns during a Sarasota County Legislative Delegation meeting that featured impassioned pleas from audience members to protect New College. So what's going on at New College of Florida? A closer look here and call us up here on the Florida Roundup at 305-995-1800 or tweet us at Florida Roundup as we welcome Catherine Hahn, USA Today statewide enterprise reporter. Hey, Catherine. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us, Zach Anderson, political editor at the Sarasota Herald Tribune. Hi, Zach. Hello. And Sophia Brown, editor-in-chief at New College's student-run newspaper, The Catalyst. Sophia, good to have you, too. Hi, thank you for having me. Catherine, what does the appointment of these six new board members actually mean for New College? What do we expect to see happen here? So... Governor DeSantis appointed these six new members uh, and announced it on Friday and uh, seemed to catch a lot of students and alumni off guard, Um, but we got a little bit of a a glimpse into the thinking behind uh, these appointments. Um, As my colleague Zach reported, um, Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz said that uh, it is our hope that New College of Florida will become Florida's classical college, more along the lines of a Hillsdale of the South. Uh, So Hillsdale is a small Christian conservative college in central Michigan. So that's what he's referring to there. Um, One of the appointments, Christopher Rufo, as you mentioned, um, outlined kind of his thinking on, on what he wants to see. Uh, uh, change at New College, and he spoke about a, uh, he's planning to travel to New College this month with a team of of fellow Board of Trustees members, consultants, lawyers, and political allies to conduct a, quote, top-down restructuring and, quote, design a new core curriculum from scratch. And he said he plans to move quickly. Uh, He told the, the New York Times that the school's academic departments, quote, are going to look very different in the next 120 days. Uh, however, uh, my colleague Zach also reported that uh, another board member, Michael Bowerlian, kind of uh, had a more measured uh, approach and, and said that, you know, anything that's going to change is probably going to be on, uh, you know, much slower than than mm-hmm. what has been portrayed by uh, by uh, Mr. Rufo. So there seems to be a little bit of a disagreement already among the new board members on how on how fast this transformation is going to go. Um, but that that's sort of where we're at at this point. 305-995-1800. So Zach Anderson, we did reach out to Christopher Rufo to join us today, but he was unavailable. Uh, but New College seems to be the latest flashpoint in these kinds of culture wars because it is known as a really progressive institution, uh, prominent LGBTQ presence among uh, the students. Uh, it, it, it embraces progressive progressive values. So to take it in a far more conservative direction would be a massive cultural change for New College of Florida. What are you hearing from students and faculty about all that? Well, they're pretty worried about it. I mean, uh, the, this, the college has a long history, as, as you said, of being a more progressive institution. It was founded in 1960. And at that point, it was a private college and it was founded as sort of a private 
progressive college. It's in the name, new college. You know, it was kind of the idea was to do something different with this school, you know, and so uh, they don't have grades. They have, um, you know, they, they do uh, these projects or they're more in depth. Um, and so they take a, a different approach to education. And what they're, <clears throat> that has done is it has attracted uh, different types of students who are more interested uh, in that approach and who tend to be a little bit more independent, a little, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, people would say maybe a little bit quirkier. I mean, it, it has that kind of flavor on campus and uh, that tends to attract more liberal minded people. And what they're talking about is, is really a conservative transformation, which would really kind of turn new college upside down. Well, let's speak to our students. Sophia Brown, you're the editor of the student newspaper at New College, The Catalyst. Why did you choose New College and what are your thoughts about these potential changes to your campus? Yeah, I'm entering um, my final semester here at New College. And I do have to say, I think I would have been completely understimulated anywhere else. Um, I was originally attracted to New College because of the intense academic curriculum and particularly the strong writing program. Um, there is no uh, English 101 here at New College. Uh, all of the courses I take have names like uh, pedagogy and practice or realism and surrealism in modern drama. Um, all the faculty are experts in their fields really and have a wealth of knowledge and enthusiasm to share with students. Um, I really do feel that New College is a place defined by people who feel passionately about independent research and letting students carve out their own academic niche. Um, and there's so many examples I could point to. There's the undergraduate thesis, all students are required to write to graduate. Um, there is the independent study period that all students take, take part in every January. Um, they, both of these things really give students the freedom to engage with any kind of topic or project most fulfilling to them. And it's embedded straight into the curriculum. Every student has that opportunity. That all sounds great. So as you mentioned, you're about to graduate. What are some of your fellow students who are newer to the school expressing to you in the student newspaper about this potential major rightward shift? Right. Um, I know when I heard the news, there was certainly some apprehension, some anxiety, and I think those feelings are shared among students. But I also think it is important to recognize, um, to echo some of what has already been said, that some of the changes being proposed by figures like Crufo um, to restructure the core curriculum and the faculty and administration, many of these changes just aren't feasible and certainly not in 120 days. Um, when you consider the checks and balances of the board of trustees and sort of the bureaucratic side of this, um, because it is important to also remember that along with these new appointees, our board of trustees also has new college alums and a faculty and student representative. And I'm sure the new appointees are also aware of this. I think three of them have PhDs themselves. I'm sure they're all very familiar with the inner workings of sort of the bureaucratic underbelly of an institution. Um, and so I think as a student, um, I think it's important to recognize that um, New College is not a politically motivated institution. I, I would say New College teaches independence and critically critical thinking, critical thinking skills, excuse me. And so more than feeling apprehensive or nervous, I, I think um, the collective feeling among students, certainly for myself, is frustration that um, such a special institution could be infringed upon. 305-995-1800 is the number. We're calling, talking about the uh, appointment of six new members of the Board of Trustees of New College, a liberal arts college in Sarasota. Some concerns from students, uh, faculty and alumni about what that might mean for the future of that university. Give us a call. Let us know what your thoughts are. Uh, what impact might this have on this school? What are the implications for other schools? Um, let me come back to you for a moment, Catherine Vaughan. I wanted to ask, I mean, how does what's happening at New College, what may happen, fit in with legislation signed by Governor DeSantis, kind of what we've heard on the campaign trail over the last year or so, how does it sort of fit into dovetailing with all of that? Sure. So 
Yeah, the governor has made education a big focus of his um, both K through 12 and higher education. Uh, definitely has has targeted it uh, with some of his culture war type bills. Um, the one that really comes into play with higher education is the quote unquote stop woke act. Uh, and that aim was aimed at uh, restricting how uh, colleges, higher education institutions, and also workplaces can talk about race uh, and gender identity and uh, with the goal of, of trying to stop feelings of, of guilt for uh, historical wrongdoings, uh, you know, systemic racism issues and things like that. So, uh, however, part of part of that bill, specifically the part dealing with higher education, was blocked in federal court back in, I believe, November. Um, and the judge who ruled on that case, Mark Walker, uh, called it positively dystopian. So, uh, so that part of the bill is is sort of on hold right now. But just um, just last week, the governor uh, uh, sent a memo to every college and university in the in the state um, asking for their funding and uh, how much funding and how many positions are associated with their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives on campus. And uh, he, the memo hinted at that the governor needed this information for the upcoming budget uh, budget making um, session. So there's some concern that uh, he, he could withhold state funding for those programs or um, or, you know, at least have, you know, have this information and, 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 and use it in, in the way that maybe he wanted to with the Stop Woke Act, but can't now mm -hmm. uh, because it was blocked in court. So, uh, so he's definitely still, um, despite the court challenges, is definitely still uh, eyeing diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives on college campuses very closely and, and really looking at how much money is being spent, what what positions are associated with those programs. So mm -hmm. um, uh, the colleges all had to turn in that information actually by today. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens from here now, you know, with the state having all of that, all of that information. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Let's go to Larry now in Tampa. Uh, Larry, you're on the air. Larry, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you very much for taking my call. Uh, I was just curious as to, you know, why would they have to change new colleges' curriculum? I mean, couldn't they just um, found another school more in line with the curriculum they're trying to teach? You know, why, hmm. why change new college? Thanks for your call. Um, Zach, let me put that to you. I mean, it's probably not a uh, an easy task to start a brand new school from scratch, right? What are your thoughts on, you know, what where a, a legislature or a governor who's kind of interested in changing education might might go, and where a new brand new school might fit into that? Yeah, I think that one of the reasons they might be targeting new college is it, it's a it's a relatively small school. It only has around. 700 people so it's easier to try and do a complete overhaul of a smaller institution if they tried to do this at like university of florida or somewhere else i think it would meet uh you know a lot more uh, resistance whereas you know at new college you have um you know it's a relatively contained institution uh you know you have a, a relatively small administration and faculty and so it's it's easier with with a few moves to make big changes they're founding a new university i mean that would be uh take take years and and be uh you know a long expensive process i mean people have pointed out like why why do you need an institution like you're proposing like a hillsdale when you have uh you know a university like ave maria which is down in the of Naples, Fort Myers area, which is a, a conservative Catholic college. There are other types of these institutions and not just in, uh, not Hillsdale, but here in Florida as well. But, you know, the governor has control over the state institutions to a degree. He gets to appoint a large number of the board members. And this is sort of a splashy move. As Catherine said, he's been very active um, in these, you know, one of his big uh initiatives is this, you know, war on woke, you know, going after things that are viewed as uh, too liberal, too, uh, you know, ideologic, you know, his ideal uh, against his ideological views. And uh, New College, I think, is 
um, has a reputation as being, uh, you know, uh, more on that uh, side of the ideological spectrum. And so he can make a big splash at, at this school. And, and it sort of puts New College right at the center of this this so-called war on woke. War on woke. Here's a tweet from State Representative Anna Escamani. She says, reminder, New College of Florida is known for its academic rigor and intense coursework. It's easy to label a school on a partisan political lens, but this is the same school that attracted R. Derek Black alongside former GOP members of Congress. Let's go to Carl in Pompano Beach. Hey, Carl, thanks for holding. Go ahead. Hi, my daughter is a student at New College, currently out of the country on an inter-semester project with New College. Lost in this discussion is the fact that New College is one of the highly rate, most highly rated liberal arts colleges in the country. It's also the smallest school in the state university system, and that is transparently the reason that Ron DeSantis has decided to destroy this college, because it has a very small student base, and it has a very small faculty, and this clearly has nothing to do with education and everything to do with furthering his political agenda and his impending run for president. It's easy to destroy something like New College, when it will make your base happy and the opportunity cost is fairly small. Lost in all of this is that Florida is about to lose its honors college and the most highly rated liberal arts institution in the state. Carl, thanks. Uh, We should note supporters of this change say that they would keep the academic rigor at New College. I only have about a minute left, but let's, uh, let's give our student Sophia the last word. Sophia. Right. Thank you. Um, I can really only speak for myself, but when I think of inclusivity in education, I think of broadening my horizons, of expanding what I read or study or what voices I listen to beyond my own bubble, uh, beyond what I'm already familiar with. And really, I think this is the goal of all higher education when it comes down to it. Uh, College is all about meeting people from all walks of life and being introduced to new ways of thinking or working in the world. I know if I limited myself to only listening to or learning from one voice or just one group of voices, um, I would not be getting the same quality of education that I get now. And And so really, I think. And I want to thank you. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Thank you all so much. Catherine Varn, USA Today, Zach Anderson, Sarasota Herald Tribune and Sophia Brown. She had its new college's student paper, The Catalyst. Thank you all. Thank you. When we come back, Florida's Democrats try to rally after a brutal midterm election. That's next. the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Two months after the Florida Democratic Party suffered one of its worst elections in modern history, party chair Manny Diaz announced on Monday he's resigning from office. It's not surprising. 
in the 2022 midterm election, Democrats lost every statewide race on the ballot. They also lost several major legislative races as well, with the representation now whittled down to just 35 members in the 120-member Florida House and 12 in the 40-member Senate. And, of course, Governor Ron DeSantis won re-election by nearly 20 points. So, in the face of all this, how does the Democratic Party ever recover in this increasingly red state? For more, I spoke with Democratic strategist Steve Shale. Shale directed Barack Obama's Florida campaign here in 2008, and he has served as CEO of Unite the Country, a pro-Joe Biden super PAC. Here's that conversation. Steve Shale, good to be with you. Thanks for joining the Florida Roundup. Yeah, thanks, Melissa. Good to talk to you. So you're one of the most prominent Democrats in Florida. I'd like to get your reaction to the resignation of uh, former party chair Manny Diaz. And uh, in his resignation letter, he denied that Florida is now actually a red state. Is Florida now a red state, in your view? I mean, listen, there's no way to deny what happened on Election Day. I mean, I don't fundamentally believe Florida has moved 18 points in in a matter of two or four years. Uh, I think you had a lot of things sort of come together this cycle that that gave DeSantis some tremendous advantages over whoever would be the nominee. Uh, But I don't don't disagree with with Manny in, in terms of the idea the state could still be competitive. I mean, I would remind folks, frankly, you know, when I worked at the party, which was in 2005, you know, Democrats had just come off of losing the governor's race by 15 points to Jeb Bush. Had lost the presidential race to George Bush by, by I think, six points. You know, and then we we won three of the next six wide statewide elections in in 06 and 08. So, you know, I, I certainly don't think that all hope is is lost. Uh, but I do think this is, I mean, sort of probably the understatement of the interview. This is a massive inflection moment for the party to figure out. And how do you see Florida Democrats figuring that out? Uh, I mean, Diaz said, uh, you know, and I'm quoting, we cannot win elections if we continue to rely on voter registration to drive turnout, build field operations only around elections, and expect to get our vote out without engaging voters where they live and help everyday people with everyday problems. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, I think, you know, that fundamentally the, you know, the, for the most part, the Florida Democratic Party as an entity, uh, and it is certainly not the only entity that works in Democratic politics in Florida, but, you know, for the sake of this exercise, you know, the Florida Democratic Party has largely been an entity that exists in a real fundamental way for about six months around every four years. You know, if you look at, you know, going back to Obama, sort of through the Clinton campaign, even the Biden campaign, you know, would invest a significant amount of money around the party. Uh, they would build up a huge operation, you know, for those four to six months around the presidential campaign, and then it will go away. So, for example, if you look at voter registration trends over the last decade, almost two decades in Florida, Democrats would spike, you know, around presidential elections, and it would just kind of, you know, taper off. And so, you know, there's never really been, uh, at least in the last decade, much effort to build any kind of real permanent, longstanding operation or infrastructure. And you know, as I wrote in a piece, uh, I actually wrote a letter yesterday to the uh, Democratic Executive Committee in Florida who will vote on the next chair. To me, like building that permanent infrastructure focused on registration, focused on engagement, building volunteer capacity, that has to be the, the only job of the next chairperson. And it seems like there would be no shortage of candidates for that job, but at the same time, uh, given the party's woes, uh, are you concerned at all uh, that it will be tough to attract somebody really qualified and good to try to rebuild this party after uh, the midterm losses? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, again, I, I worked at the party, you know, well over a decade now. feels like a lifetime ago at this point. Um, you know, and, and in those days, you know, again, coming out of a very similar kind of moment, um, you know, the uh, at the time, uh, Scott Maddox, who is the now currently in jail, former mayor of Tallahassee, um, you know, had left the party like a million dollars in debt. Again, we lost a ton of elections. But former Congresswoman Karen Thurman, who had just left Congress, came in as the chair. And it was like kind of the perfect chair for the moment. She had instant credibility. She had the ability to raise money. She had she understood what it took to win races against Republicans. Um, you know, and I, and I do worry. when I, I mean, there's some really nice people who I like personally who have raise their hand about running, but I have nobody yet who has sort of, you know, raised their hand in a way that I think is real. And, 
you know, as I wrote in the letter yesterday, you know, I actually used the Jaguars analogy. You know, this is a little bit kind of like life after Urban Meyer. I mm-hmm. mean, and it, it is, you know, it is more important to take the time to get the hire right than it is to get it done in, in a timely fashion. And so, you know, I know the election, I think, is coming up pretty soon. I don't know the exact date, but, you know, my advice to, to my friends on the uh, Florida Credit Party Executive Committee is if it, if it takes you another two or three months to find the right person, like, don't rush it. It's more important to get the right person than it is to get this done quickly. Now, you mentioned the importance of building a year-round operation, which certainly the Republicans in Florida uh, have done robustly. Uh, Former Chair Diaz also criticized national groups for not sending more funding to Democrats in Florida. What about the role of money in elections? I mean, you know, I mean, people don't want to talk about it, but it's it's absolutely the fundamental, you know, thing that makes a difference. I mean, when you look at you know, the, you know, I go you know back to the days of, you know, Barack Obama was able to outspend in Florida, John McCain and Mitt Romney, Rick, Rick Scott always outspent his opponents, Ron DeSantis out, obviously outspent Charlie Crist. I mean, you know, spending makes a huge difference because it allows you to do all the things. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the challenge when you don't have money is you have to make difficult decisions that require you in those decisions to, to not do something that is vital to winning. And so, Having a chair who understands the importance of raising money is going to be important. Now, you know, 2022 was the perfect storm for Republicans. They had a governor who was, you know, relatively popular, had an absolute ton of money. Democrats were on the defense nationally. And when you're on the defense, you focus on those places where you already have members. And so Democrats in the governor's races were focused on places like Pennsylvania, places like Michigan, places like Kansas, you know, uh, Nevada, you know, and, you know, they weren't, Democrats weren't playing sort of a, you know, offensive game of trying to take back seats because they had to protect what they had. Uh, and so, you know, I do think going forward, you know, 2026, Florida will have an open governor's race. I think you'll see Democrats engage in, especially if you have good candidates engage in, in, a, in a different sort of way. But, you know, we're going to have to kind of build this thing out, you know, from inside. I mean, we're going to have to sort of make the case and prove to national donors that, you know, investing in Florida makes sense. And, you know, that's going to be on the, sorry, I hate to say, on the next chair to, to begin to put together the kind of operation that national donors can have confidence in. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio as we talk with Democratic strategist Steve Shale. So lastly, Steve, let me ask you, you know, what about the role of sorting in America and how that is impacting Florida's political fortunes? More and more people are moving to places where they feel more ideologically comfortable, either to a blue state or... Uh, in the case of Florida, we've seen a lot of new arrivals who say they like the conservative politics here. How does that impact the Democratic Party's ability to gain traction? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's certainly a thing. But I mean, I, I've tended to be in my career someone who doesn't believe that kind of anything that is the current thing of the moment is actually the thing that's going to change everything. I mean, the reality is Florida is this massive state with huge dynamic populations that are constantly evolving. I and mean, if you remember, Melissa, you know, five, six years ago now, um, you know, people thought that uh, migrants from Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria would make Florida a blue state forever. And I was frankly one of the few people that said, hey, like, pump the brakes here. You know, there's there's a lot going on. You know, there's been a lot of migration. It's not been as big as people kind of make it out to be. And the, and the impact hasn't been as significant. I mean, if you were to go back to, say, 2008, which, again, it was a long time ago, and you were to tell me that Florida would be 7 to 8% made up of uh, a diverse population more than it was in those days, I would have told you Florida would have been far more Democratic. I mean, the reality is is that for Democrats to win in Florida, we have to do better with Hispanic voters. We've got to do better with non-college white voters. We've got to do better with suburban white voters. We've got to do, you know, frankly, places like Duval, you know, that we had made real gains in and then saw them go back in uh, in twenty uh, in twenty twenty two, and so you know th- those things to me are fundamentally far more important than whatever the population trend du jour is. Because again, over time, in a state of twenty two million people, a couple hundred thousand people moving in and out, um, you know, it, again, it just sort of ends up in the wash. You know, the bigger fundamental mm-hmm. things uh, to me are are, are you know, I, had, had nobody moved to Florida when Ron DeSantis was governor, Ron DeSantis still would have won Florida pretty overwhelmingly this cycle. And so, you know, to me, it's it's getting back to, you know, fixing those basic things that, you know, uh, uh, you know, that are, I think, critical for us to have any chance of being competitive going forward. 
Democratic strategist Steve Shale. Good to have you on the Florida Roundup. Thanks so much. It's always good to be on, Melissa. Thanks again. All right, folks. Finally, this hour, it's wild card weekend. And what does that mean here in Florida? Something that hasn't happened, Matthew, in over 20 years. Yes, all three of Florida's NFL teams are in the playoffs. Jacksonville hosts the, uh, the Chargers Saturday at 8.15 p.m. Miami goes to Buffalo to play the Bills Sunday. And then Matthew and your neck of the woods, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, welcome the Cowboys to Raymond James Stadium Monday night. Right, yeah. I mean, all three Florida teams, I think, are underdogs, some with a sort of better odds than others. I think Jaguars are not not too looking too bad there. Dolphins carrying a lot of injuries, so probably not a good team to be wagering money on. And, of course, uh, the Buccaneers have the best odds, according to Caesars Sportsbook, of all three teams to win the NFL. So looking ahead to this upcoming game, uh, Tom Brady has won seven regular season games against the Cowboys. He'll be looking to add to that winning streak, Melissa. That's right. And, you know, up here in our neck of the woods, you know what we say, Matthew, Duval! Go Jaguars! How many, how many, how many <laughs> U's in Duval, Melissa? Quite a few. <laughs> so good luck, Jags. That's our show, the Florida Roundup, produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Chue are producers. WLRN's Vice President of Radio and our Technical Director is Peter Mertz. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels and Isabella De Silva. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Have a great weekend, everyone, and enjoy your Martin Luther King Day holiday. <laughs>